I'm Jerry Willis. I'm Steve Ducey. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, May 1st, 2020. I'm Trey Yinks. In the battle against COVID-19, some of the stay-at-home measures are starting to affect the mental health of people around the world. Make no mistake about this, this is traumatic. Even if we're safe at home and, you know, no one is in danger or everybody is healthy, it's still a traumatic experience. This is the Fox News Rundown, Global Pandemic. The coronavirus affects all ages, races, and ethnicities. Even those who don't catch the virus are suffering in their own way. Stuck indoors, home from work, with many now unemployed. The physical and mental toll on your bodies is real. Over the next few minutes, you'll get the latest headlines on the global COVID-19 outbreak and hear from psychologist Dr. Melissa Whitson about how the coronavirus is affecting your mental health. Before we begin, a warning. Some of the topics we're covering today include suicide, depression, and anxiety. If you or anyone you know is struggling, you can reach out to a crisis hotline by dialing 1-800-273-TALK. Starting first in New York. This week, an ER doctor took her own life after serving on the front lines in the fight against coronavirus. Dr. Lorna Breen was treating coronavirus patients in New York's Presbyterian Allen Hospital when she contracted COVID-19. After recovering from the disease, she went back to try and save others in her community. Breen's sister said she was working 12-hour shifts in unimaginable conditions. While the story does have a sad ending, her father wants Breen to be remembered as a hero. Now to Boston, where officials say helplines are now seeing a much higher number of calls than usual amid the coronavirus outbreak. Local reports say some of the concerns callers have center around food security, unemployment, and child care. The vice president of Massachusetts 211, one of the main hotlines, said that 60% of the calls received are from people contemplating suicide or having suicidal ideation. Now overseas to the United Kingdom, where the government is actively encouraging doctors to seek help if they are struggling with their own mental health. In a letter penned this week by members of the British Parliament, politicians called on hospitals to put into place measures that protect healthcare workers. Also, the UK health minister has provided doctors and nurses with a hotline number to call if they're feeling overwhelmed. That according to the BBC. So how is this global pandemic affecting the way we interact with others in the United States, the UK and around the world? For many people, it is very similar to what happens when our body undergoes trauma. Um, And we don't often think about it, but a reaction to trauma is something that is actually held in some very deep parts of the brain. This is Dr. Melissa Whitson, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of New Haven. She joins us today from Connecticut. Things that we don't even control, you know, with our frontal lobe or our, our cognitions. So, um, you know, make no mistake about this, this is traumatic. Even if we're safe at home and, you know, no one is in danger or everybody is healthy, it's still a traumatic experience, um, particularly for children. And it's one that kind of is ongoing, right? Um, So it's more akin to like a chronic or toxic type of stress. Now, obviously, that type of trauma heightens for people that are um, dealing with health issues related to the the pandemic or the essential workers that are on the front line, so to speak. Um, But for everybody, when our body feels like it's uh, in danger or it's stressed, right, we have this physiological arousal that people talk about the flight or fight, right? Um, And so that's why people feel particularly stressed, anxious, difficulty sleeping, right? Um, even yeah, and so what, what are some of those, what are some of those diagnoses or what are some of the things that people are being diagnosed with 
maybe mm-hmm. that is new for them if people in the past haven't right. struggled with mental health but during uh, an outbreak like this? Well, I'm not even sure that we would necessarily jump to diagnoses quite yet because oftentimes we have um, things that we call like adjustment disorders, right? So if we're dealing with a specific situation and we're trying to adjust and we're having difficulty adjusting, which is understandable in that situation, um, you know, it wouldn't um, lend itself to like a depression diagnosis necessarily, right? Now those people. So it's that like might a, it's like an acute. It's like an acute uh, right. diagnosis yeah. almost. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, um, you know, those people that have had depression or anxiety prior to this, that would likely be exacerbated in this situation. Um, but, you know, so it's not necessarily diagnoses that we're seeing, but it's the symptoms, right? It's the symptoms that everybody are dealing with that are similar to post-traumatic symptoms that are similar to anxiety symptoms. And some people handle it more where they withdraw and they isolate more, and so more of kind of depressive symptoms that we see. Um, and so people handle it very different ways. And some people have a combination of these reactions. Some people have one or the other. Sometimes you fluctuate throughout the day or throughout the week. So there's no one way that people are going to experience this because we're all unique. But regardless, if, you know. If people are at home, though, and they're feeling down right now or they're feeling depression or anxiety as a result of these stay-at-home orders and these sorts of things. When we talk about these being almost like an acute diagnosis, is this something that you envision will pass for many people once a lot of the lockdown orders are lifted and people can start getting back into a more normal routine? Um, I don't think it will um, necessarily disappear. I think it might lessen for a lot of people, but um, one thing we know about when people endure a um, great amount of stress or trauma is that there tends to be lingering effects, even if it's not as pronounced to meet the qualifications for a mental health diagnosis. Um, you know, there are where this is going to be with us um, mentally, physiologically for a while, um, and uh, and so we need to pay attention to that and know that. It's not just going to be this magic wand when things start reopening and we start getting back to some of our normal routines that all of a sudden we're going to be better Um, because this is something that gets ingrained in it. Your body kind of holds on to that um, without us even being aware of it sometimes. Um, And you mentioned PTSD and and sort of how doctors are also coping with this on the front lines. Obviously, Mm -hmm. their experience is a lot different. Uh, You might be able to equate it to people during times of war when they know loved ones that are overseas fighting, for example. But in this case, mm-hmm. they may have loved ones who are serving as doctors or nurses. But then actually those people on the front lines, I mean, how mm-hmm. are they affected? And do hospitals offer ongoing tools for these sorts of professionals as they're treating the coronavirus? Right. Um, you're exactly right to kind of equate it to a wartime scenario. You know, I think that, um, you know, some hospitals do offer those supports or through employee assistant programs and things like that. But right now, I think they're just kind of in crisis mode, right? And they're, you know, and a lot of people and a lot of frontline workers are not, you know, paying attention to that because they're working crazy hours, um, you know, and they're exhausted when they get home and things like that. So um, I think kind of approaching our um you know, the services that we provide to them and the way that we should think about even after this kind of lessons is similar to those of veterans um, for more. 
So like the veteran system, how we have preventative things set up, how we have kind of all these different services available to them, we should really kind of have a program like that for our healthcare workers that were on the front lines during this because it's going to be a somewhat similar type of reaction that they're going to experience. You've been listening to psychologist Dr. Melissa Whitson. We'll be right back. This reaction is really interesting, and I want to dig down a little bit into what's actually happening in the brain. You talked a little yeah. bit about the fight versus flight response, but when people are experiencing PTSD, what's happening inside their heads? Sure. Well, um, our very basic parts of our brain, so back to our brain stem and our limbic system are the ones that really hold on to trauma. So kind of, you know, our frontal lobe is where our cognitions are, but our brainstem is responsible for our consciousness, for our breathing rate, right? So that's why when we're in traumatic experiences, our breathing gets more rapid or we have difficulty sleeping. Our limbic system is our emotions, right? Um, so how we react to that, where, you know, that gets activated in terms of the fear response, the anger. Anger is a very natural reaction to this. And we should not be afraid of it, but it's just what we do with that anger, right? So um, our body kind of holds on to that. And, you know, it's been in stress for weeks and weeks and weeks now. And people are calling it quarantine fatigue, which is, you know, a, an apt description because our bodies are exhausted, right? After it's, you know, our bodies are in this heightened arousal for a long period of time, there's only so much you can keep that up. And so... What happens there is people, you know, just kind of feel completely deflated. They feel despair. They might withdraw more. They might act out. Um, you know, how people handle that is going to look differently. But that's kind of like our physiological system is so tired from being amped up for so long. Um, and, no, you know, we can, talking about it and thinking about it um, verbally is helpful, but that's all frontal lobe stuff. So that doesn't really access those deeper parts of our brain. Things like deep breathing, meditation, yoga, um, those types of things actually um, do kind of bypass the frontal lobe and get to those deeper levels and can be really helpful in, in calming our system as well as our mind. What are some other tips that you would give to people who are at home and maybe don't have access to healthcare professionals that can assist with their mental health? Um, mm -hmm. Or, as you know, as a psychologist, there are many people who can't afford to see a psychologist or don't have yeah. uh, the proper health care to, to reap those benefits. So what do you suggest to people who are at home right now listening and want to do something to help their mental health? Right. Um, that's a great question. So there's a number of things, right? Um, one is a lot of people have recommended a couple of things in terms of trying to keep some sort of schedule for your day, right? Um, trying to um, trying to connect with other people, you know, virtually or getting outside and saying hi to neighbors from a safe distance. Um, those types of connections and kind of building this sense of uh, sense of community and shared emotional connection um, really helps to aid our resilience um, in terms of individual and community resilience. Um, also, having that kind of schedule helps us keep keeps us you know our body kind of more on its rhythm. Uh, which can also be helpful as well. Um, and then there are other ways that are available for more kind of outside help as well that are free, right? So there, people have developed different organizations in different areas, have developed different hotlines, some, you know, that people can just call into if they just want some advice about how to deal with their kids, you know, or just kind of to vent about that. 
Um, there are definitely suicide prevention hotlines, but there are a number of organizations that are offering all these different types of resources for free for people virtually. Um, so those are also available to them as well. Um, and as I mentioned, just kind of trying to identify some self-care techniques that work for you. So for some people that might be meditation, yoga, like I mentioned, that deep breathing, whatever that is, um, to kind of ground ourselves and kind of regulate our system are really important. But a lot of other people have found other ways of self-care. Um, you know, people are doing puzzles, people are, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then another thing is that when we experience trauma, one of the things that makes it worse is feeling helpless. And it's really hard not to feel helpless in this situation, right? Um, so things that we can do that, that make us feel like we're doing something or we have some control over this uncontrollable situation um, can be helpful. So when you see people donating money or um, making masks, right, for other people or donating food to essential workers, that is really restorative to our psyche because it feels like, okay, I have control. I can do this. I can help out in some way, right? And even reframing social distancing is, this is me actually doing something, even though I feel like I'm at home not doing anything, right? That's that a I fascinating perspective, yeah. Yeah, and I have some control over this. And that can kind of help us think, okay, we're not completely helpless here. Um, we are doing something. One last question for you. How do you see all of this changing the way that we interact? I mean, you mentioned reaching out to friends and being able to see a neighbor from a distance, but... The Zoom calls and the Skype sessions and the communicating over social media doesn't have that human feel to it. And mm -hmm. while it allows us to connect and, and communicate, I think there's this question about when we'll be able to go back to spending time together in parks and when we'll be able to hug family members and these sorts of things. And when that day does come, do you envision that it will be different just based on how long we've been apart as a society? Yeah, I mean, how can it not, right? Um, not only because um, we've been apart, but because now there is this um, fear that's built into interacting with one another, right? Like when we start, when we are next allowed to, even I'm like, okay, I'm going to hug them, but then I'm going to think about whether or not that was a good idea for days, right? Um, so there's always going to be this hesitancy and, and, and almost fear and anxiety around those normal interactions that, quite frankly, are, you know, are kind of restorative for us and that increase, you know, good hormone levels in our bodies when we hug people and, you know, when we're close to them. Um, so it's definitely going to alter, you know, how we feel about those interactions, how hesitant we are. Um, and because we'll be kind of doing this in a more gradual level, there'll, there'll still be a lot of restrictions around how we interact with people. Um, so it is going to be, that's why I said, it's, this is a long-term adjustment and this is going to be with us for a while, not just when we're back to normal, but that's going to be infiltrated in the you know, larger community psyche and collective uh, unconscious for a while. Absolutely. Some really great insight. Dr. Melissa Woodson, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of New Haven and Licensed Psychologist. Doctor, thank you again for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.
This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.